Again, and welcome to episode 12 of Break the Cycle with me, your host, Joshua Smith. I hope everyone's having a wonderful Tuesday. I know I usually do my shows on Wednesday and Friday, but it was the only time I could get a hold of our guest, who I am so amazingly excited to have on tonight. Uh, but let's start out with some sponsors. Of course, we have Lorenzotti.coffee for all of your Italian coffee needs delivered directly to your door. If you use BTC at checkout, you will get a 10% discount. It is delicious coffee. My girlfriend and I, my fiance and I love it. Uh, Wednesday show, I said I was going to do something special that night. I did get engaged. Uh, she said yes. I'm very excited. Orders coffee. It's amazing. Uh, Toplobster.com. He's the man, the myth, the legend. You can get this Tree of Liberty shirt. Of course, he means it in Minecraft only. Uh, also use BTC at checkout. You get a 10% discount on anything there. There is a Break the Cycle fashion line. Uh, some pretty cool stuff. You can also get the None of the Above shirt. There is a big shout out to our boy Nick Sarwark, who we love very much on this show. Uh, and also Anthem Planning, anthemplanning.com for all of your emergency uh, business needs. They're doing a job the government would love to steal from you. Uh, so definitely hit them up. Mises Caucus people, great people uh, out of Delaware. They're amazing. So moving on, we have a great guest, like I said tonight. He is the author of the book Fool's Errand, and he's got a new book out now, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, which you can pick up right now on Amazon. He's the editor-in-chief of Antiwar.com, the head of the Libertarian Institute, the best anti-war voice of certainly my generation, and undoubtedly one of the biggest influences for the work I do. He is a real American badass, Scott Horton. Scott, how the hell are you, sir? Man, I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me, Josh. I appreciate of, it. Of course, man. I'm stoked to do it. Is a uh, Do you think it's safe to say that John Bolton keeps a picture of you on a dartboard in a dive bar somewhere? Uh, you know, I don't know. I know the Young Americans for Liberty tried to arrange a debate between me and him last year. And the answer from his people was John Bolton will not be debating Scott. Bolton. <laughs> of course. That's not. all I know. <laughs> who, who do you think? I, who do you I think, wouldn't speculate. <laughs> who do you think would hate you more, him or Brennan? Oh, Brennan, because I hate Brennan more. <laughs> and I would be worse to Brennan. I can find a kind word to say about John Bolton. He hates the United Nations, different from me, but at least he hates it. You know, there's something to build on there. Some, something to, to say in that Dale Carnegie kind of give your opponent a little bit of credit kind of thing. 
but that Brennan, there is no redeeming quality to him. Nothing. And he thinks you're a domestic terrorist, Scott. So, you know, he's I I hope I wasn't the one he had in mind when he said that. But possibly it, it was you know? it was all of us, Scott. It was all of us. Anybody yeah, with man. a libertarian moniker that we're using, he thinks we're yeah. domestic terrorists. So. Yeah. Well, and I love picking on him. I mean, he's so guilty of so many things. I mean, where do you even begin? Of oh, sure. Of course. Of course. So, uh, you just recently, uh, testified in Texas for the defend the guard legislation. Let's talk a little bit about that. What is that? Yeah. And, uh, what, what did they have you do while you were there? Okay. So, uh, the defend the guard legislation, uh, was, uh, originated by a state representative from West Virginia named Pat McGeehan. And, uh, he's an antiwar.com kind of a guy and a combat veteran. I'm pretty sure a combat veteran, definitely a veteran. Um, and the legislation says you can't have our National Guard troops, the national government under Title 10, can't nationalize the National Guard uh, troops that belong to the states and are normally under the authority of the governors, except in emergency circumstances. You can't have them. Forget the president nationalizing them. We won't let you nationalize them unless Congress declares war. And that is, of course, the law, but it's the law that our government would uh, just rather do without. In fact, um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but in 2002, when they were debating the authorization for war against Iraq, Ron Paul was on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and he introduced a declaration of war resolution against Iraq. And then he gave a speech urging everyone on the committee to vote against it and so that he, of course, would vote against it as well. But he was calling them out and saying, you want to do this? You're the Congress. It's your authority. It's your responsibility. You declare war then. And Henry Hyde, who was the chair of the committee at the time, chastised Paul and said that part of the Constitution is an anachronism. We just don't do that anymore. And that's their point of view on the way the law is. But the thing is, as I think, you know, it's you know, out of all the different kinds of government employees in the country, it's the military members who, at least in their own mind, it, it depends on how far this really goes in practice, but certainly in their own mind, they take their oath to the Constitution the most seriously out of, you know, certainly federal civilian employees. It doesn't mean a thing to them. It's sure. just a, a box they have to check. But, you know, soldiers are trained to believe that they're risking their life for this thing and that it has an import worthy of that risk, right? So um, so then that's kind of the theory behind the legislation is here you have essentially broadly defined Ron Paul Republicans, anti-war, libertarian-ish, America first in a good way, not in trade wars with China ways, but in a bring our troops home um, and and, you know, foreign policy should be to protect the rights and the and the, the freedom and safety of the American people full stop. And that's it. Um, and it's people with that attitude who are introducing this legislation. And then here's the main point. It's going to be in 30 states this year. And it was in like 20 something last year. And of course, it's a, you know, tough uh, road to hoe. It's not an easy task to get this thing passed. Um, you know, they're I think they have passed. Uh, oh, no, it's a different resolution in Montana. They passed a, a different anti-war type resolution through both houses in Montana. But who knows whether it'll get past their governor. In Texas, we have a reasonable shot of getting this through the House. 
but then it's virtually certain that the Texas lieutenant governor would be, would, you know, not let it get through the Senate at all. He's so absolutely terrible. Um, but still it makes a statement. It's an important uh, point to make. And the more this is introduced and the more that it's debated and the more that it's fought over, the more it becomes a real topic of discussion. And that's the real point. I mean, no, it's not the real point. It's one of the main points. I mean, the, clearly the point is to pass these laws and protect these troops whose job it truly is to protect us from floods and forest fires who, you know, keep getting sent off to these far flung missions. But at the same time, it's also to demonstrate that, look, these guys are veterans of the wars. They're conservatives, Republicans, libertarians uh, and Republicans and constitutionalist types. And they're the ones insisting on this. And that is such an important point. I think, you know, you probably heard by now is Michael Bolden named it this. I didn't name it this, but it's the Horton rule is attack the right from the right. You know, attacking the right from the left only solidifies their position, you know, the same as it would do, you know, to anyone by being attacked by their opposite. So it's better just meet them where they are. And as good libertarians, we're better than the right on the things they're good on. And we're better than the left on the things they're good on. So we don't have to move left or right. And we don't have to you know, change our identities in any kind of chameleon way. We just hold them to what are, what we perceive as their best principles, like conserving the constitution, for example, or being relatively anti-war on the democratic side. And so an anti-imperialist foreign policy ought to be a good compromise between the anti-war liberals and the constitutionalist conservatives, right? There's, there are good principles to be you know, um, accentuated and, and, and argued based upon to get them to come to us. And so, you know, it seems like we're making some real progress. So what happened in that, in that, uh, hearing, I was the worst part of it. Cause I, I really should have been more flexible and, and tailored my argument to the democratic members of the committee. And instead I tried to make like an economic argument to the Republicans and they didn't really understand what the hell I was talking about anyway. So I was just kind of a waste, but it didn't matter because and I shouldn't even have been there or, you know, just in the audience or whatever. But I, what happened, though, was six or eight combat veterans of these wars went up there and testified. And one guy wasn't a combat vet, but he was from West Point and commanded a lot of respect from them up there because he had been a captain or something. Um, but all these guys testified, including, you know, Matthew Ho, who had been a Marine Corps captain and, you know, got a Purple Heart and, and all of this stuff in Iraq War II and was the great whistleblower of the Afghan war. Um, and, and Dan McKnight and Jeff Lyons and all these guys, and they got up there and essentially they gave like the constitutional argument and, and the legalistic argument for why this is the right thing for all of the states to do and where Texas can lead in showing that these are our priorities. And anyway, it made a big impression on them. And, and, um, I saw the guys get calls all afternoon from different people involved in Texas state politics saying, boy, you guys sure made a big splash up there on Capitol Hill today. That's the first two hour hearing full of testimony like that they've had in forever. And boy, did you catch a lot of attention and this kind of thing. So, um, you know, and then uh, they're they're doing it. So for any any for you, Joshua, and for all anyone in your audience who are combat veterans, anti-war veterans, of these wars, like this is your crew right here. It's bringourtroopshome.us. And they're working in tight alliance with Young Americans for Liberty to push all of this stuff all around the country. And I don't know what could possibly be a more important project. Oh, see, I'm sorry. I went off on too many tangents in a row and I forgot to get to this one, which was the importance of having, of, un, of 
<clears throat> the major importance of having this be a conservative Republican issue coming from the states, from the bottom up toward the national government in that way is because as a public relations thing, it really jams the narrative that the talk radio right in America, the Republican voters of America like kicking butt. Show me some Arabs, I'll bomb them. Come on, let's get them. Kick their ass and take their gas and all that crap. Now, if right-wingers don't believe that anymore, then nobody believes that anymore. True. Now, you can get liberals to turn the other way for Barack Obama killing people, but you can't get them to cheer for it. And Joe Biden is like a tenth of an Obama when it comes to being persuasive for his own base. He's no tall, dark and handsome and bright smile and, and you know, leadership qualities. He lost for president three times before he ever won. And then, yeah. So anyway, he's no Obama. He doesn't have them. Compare compare Obama as JFK and Biden as LBJ. Right. He just ain't got it. True. And so. um so there's no Democratic support really for intervention outside of D.C. and New York, of course. I mean, it, out here in the country, there's no support among the the left broadly defined, the entire left half of, of the country. And then on the right, it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller percentage all the time. And look, Donald Trump won denouncing George W. Bush's legacy was how he won. And, and McCain and Romney's refusal to is how they lost. And so. It is a new day. The people, the polls show. I was just reading a thing today. Um, the concerned veterans of America keep doing these YouGov polls. And it's like two thirds of the combat veterans of these wars say they wish they never even happened. Not just they want them to end now, but we should have never even done that. Afghanistan or Iraq. Sure. And so it's just a matter of making it a priority. It's a matter of making a big splash in terms of public relations that every time we try to whoop something up, the right wing just crosses their arms and say, no, not this time. Remember in, in August of 2013, Obama wanted to bomb over the fake sarin attack in uh, Guta oh, yeah, yeah. and in Syria. Yeah, yeah. Guta is a yeah. suburb of Damascus there. And um, and it was led by Breitbart and the and the the more populist Trumpian type right wing websites. And then therefore AM talk radio throughout the country, the right wing refused to go along. Not with Obama's commander in chief. Forget it. And they didn't do it. They didn't do it. I mean, it, it helped that the House of Commons and Britain voted it down. Sure. But Obama, <laughs> Obama backed down. Obama was like, you know what? If if the right won't even support a war, then what am I going to do? Sure. You know, I'm well, going to bomb Damascus and put Al Qaeda in power there. Nah. Well, that's probably the best. I mean, the best thing to come out of the Obama era and then the Trump era is red pilling uh, the, the right and conservatives yep. on, on the war. I mean, that's basically, yeah, absolutely. you know, but speaking of George Bush, uh, uh, George senior's stupid son, uh, in 2004, I was setting in, in the Persian Gulf and I was on the mm -hmm. USS constellation and George Bush actually declared war on Iraq. You know, I had, I had joined after September 11th thinking I was going to go defend my country. You know, I was this young kid and I'm like, Oh, all right wait a minute, what the fuck are we doing in Iraq? I thought these were Saudi nationals like via Pakistan or some, you know what I mean? And uh, where were you at 2004? Were you, were you already beating the anti-war drum in 2004? Oh yeah, I was writing for antiwar.com by then. Oh, sure, um, sure. I mean, I, I was uh, anti-government and anti-war. I'm a, I'm a little bit older than you. I graduated from high school in 95. Oh, shit. So, um, you know, Bill Clinton was the president then. There was oh, yeah. no question of whether I was going to go, you know, be a part of some New World Order, BS in the Balkans or whatever kind of thing, you know, was my take on it. When I'm going to go join the Delta Force and kill some Branch Davidians? I don't think so. Oh, yeah. Okay. So 
by the time of September 11th, I mean, I'd been predicting September 11th for years at that point that like, you know, they're going to let a big one happen and then they're going to go to war here, here and here kind of thing. And um, I was willing to speculate uh, enough at that in my youth. But and I but I was I was still me. So I speculated correctly a lot of the time. Um, And so, no, when this happened, I mean, my first instinct before I even thought about, oh, my God, the poor bastards who had to look out the window and literally get hit by a plane, you know, and what a way to die. Holy crap. Before I even considered that, I thought, oh, man, they're going to Iraq and Afghanistan. And you know what? Like George Bush and Dick Cheney are going to exploit this thing to the ends of the earth. First day in history. God dang. You know, all, you know, man. And, and so and then the first thing I did was put an upside down flag in the back window of my truck and wrote antiwar.com and shoe polish on the back window of my truck and went driving around town. And like I, I didn't have a radio show then. I was between radio shows. There was a free radio. Austin had been raided and seized by the FCC and chaos radio didn't exist yet. So chaos radio, I think. I guess went on the air at the very end of 01 and very beginning of 02. I think so. I was. And then from then on, I, I had a radio show. It was basically all anti-war all the time from that point on. Um, and then it was it was right. What's the day today? It's like this week is the 18th anniversary. So it's the sixth. So it, in six days will be the 18th anniversary of the start of the interview show. So it was three days after the fall of Baghdad. The fall of Baghdad was on the 9th. And then three days later, I interviewed Alan Bach from antiwar.com. And you know what? You go back and listen to that interview. It all stands up. Everything he said, everything I said, all the lies, that, all the weapons of mass destruction, all the everything is all in that very first interview from back then. Um, and, and by the way, if you go to scotthorton.org slash archives, I got all 5,500 of it. It's right now it's at 5,495. This Friday, it'll be 5,500. Tom Woods, are you listening? He's got you beat. Do what? I said, Tom Woods, are you listening? He's got you. Oh, beat. yeah. Yeah, poor old Tom. He knows. He He's doing great, though, man. He's doing great. 2000th episode. Um, the one thing I get to be patronizing to Tom about, right? Um, check out the length and girth of my interview list. It's impressive. Um, but, yeah, no, so then, and and then, yeah, no, by then. So here's what happened, man, was I, um, I was a cab driver, and I basically was reading books and the papers, and I was a conspiracy nut you know, uh, in the, I was a libertarian, but like a new world order kook in the John Birch society type sure. mold, you know, G. Edward Griffin, all that stuff. Um, but then, um, once I started, I got, finally got the internet consistently in the beginning, I guess, of O2. And that was when I, I knew about antiwar.com before, but that was when I actually discovered Justin Romando and started reading Justin Romando regularly. And so that was when I basically quit becoming a conspiracy kook because he knew what was really going on. It didn't have anything to do with all that old Rockefeller bullshit. It was something entirely different. And so that was when I really and I, and I found, you know, LouRockwell.com at right around that same time as well. So that was when right right as they were in the lead up to Iraq War II was when I became less of a conspiracy kook and more of just a libertarian non-interventionist. Um, and learning all about the neoconservatives and how they were the ones who lied us into war for Israel and all of that. And, um, so yeah, that was, that was, so right around the time when you were floating on that boat and I know you guys were already bombing Iraq for months before the start of the war. Um, I was doing pirate radio telling people that this is a bunch of bullshit. Sure. 
Yeah, we were definitely, I mean, uh, I, I've talked about it on the show before, but you know, we, we had two galleys on that, that carrier and, and one galley was shut down and turned into like a bomb building station where they were putting together these big rolls of leaflets, uh, to drop on Baghdad from our, from our aircraft that basically mm-hmm. were at Farsi or whatever saying, you know, get, get the fuck out. You got to get out. Cause we're going to start bombing. And that was kind of the beginning of my red pill moment where I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. You know, this is like Oakland. You know, this is like San Francisco. There's right. just like people live here. You know, there's, right. they, I've been, I've been, you know, uh, demonizing these people for, you know, years and thinking, you know, they weren't real and dehumanizing. And, and now I'm like, Oh, these are real people with dogs and ambitions and goals and day jobs right. and stuff. And we're dropping right. leaflets on their houses. Well, how would I feel if that happened to my house, you know? And, and then right. wait a minute. So we're not just bombing military bases. Why would right. we need to leaflet yeah. a neighborhood if right. we weren't going to bomb a neighborhood, you know? Right. And then, it, and then it, uh, I mean, it, it was tons, millions of tons of ordnance. I mean, we, they were loading them on the planes. The planes were leaving. They were coming back empty, loading up. I mean, all day long, all day long for hours and hours and hours. And I'm going, you know, I don't, I don't think I want to do this anymore, man. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think this is. I feel you. Yeah. So, so it was, uh, Hey, this... the Navy has been bombing Iraq from carriers in the Persian Gulf since 1991. Yeah, 91. Joshua, yeah. 30 I, years straight. Well, and I remember when I was a kid, you know, when I, cause 1989, is that when the, the war actually started there? Was it, was it 91? Was, it was, is 1990 was when Iraq invaded Kuwait and sure, the beginning sure. of 91 was the American war. So I was seven and I remember sitting on the coffee table watching on the TV, these green lights, you know, and they're, yeah, bo- yeah. they're bombs dropping. And, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, oh, my God, we're at war. This is terrifying, you know. And then and then, uh, you know, fast forward uh, 12 years and I'm at war in, in, in Iraq and I'm going. Oh man, it never ends. And that was 18 years ago. And we're still bombing them, dude. Yeah, we're well, still bombing them. Still bombing them and the Afghanistan muck i mean it's just it's just horrendous and you actually wrote an entire book on it uh fool's errand and how how do we use not just your book but the afghanistan papers that are readily available for people to read to red pill everybody else on the fact that we've been lied into these wars yeah well i'll tell you what i mean i think that's a great way to say forget the book man just go to the washington post and read the afghan papers and there's general loot the war czar under when bush got tired of paying attention to the wars he appointed loot to be the war czar. And then Obama kept him. He was like the assistant to the national security advisor running the wars. And loot says, we didn't have the foggiest notion what we were doing. And he meant it. That's ex- and he meant exactly that. And whether you're talking fighting the war, who's the enemy, which tribe is which, why do you choose to side with this faction in this province and that faction with that province? Why do you spend the reconstruction money here? Why do you favor this politician over that one? They don't know. Nobody knows. There's no plan. And when the troops rotate out and the new guys come in, they don't know a thing because the last guys didn't teach them anything before they left. And the last guys didn't know anything to teach them. And then they show up and go, okay, who are the bad guys? And the first person to say, kill my enemy, it becomes their new friend. And then they go and look, not to blame the Afghans. I mean, we, these are people in desperately poor circumstances where it, it's kind of like I was brought up learning about how people lived in, in Romania or Ukraine in during the Soviet Union was often or East Germany where people inform on their neighbors before their neighbors can inform on them. You know, you never wanted to be a rat, but man, your neighbor who hates your guts, he's going to make up something about you. So you have to go first. 
you know, this kind of thing. That's the desperate kind of situation these people are in. So the, the American Rangers come to town and they go, hey, listen, the guy over the hill that stole my goats and I'm pissed off, he's Taliban. He's friends with Al-Qaeda. Go and get him. And then the Rangers are like, hoorah, we just got here. We want to go shoot something. Show them, tell me who's the bad guy. And this is the way they talk like children. Who are the bad guys? Not who's in this tribe and who's in this tribe and why do I care? And why am I trying to balance this sect versus that sect versus this tribe versus how much power in this province or what? No, no, no. Who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Like this is a stupid movie. And then the answer is, well, as you know, there's a book called this by non Gopal. It's called No Good Men Among the Living. And that is because I guess one, all the good men are dead, right? And then, but it also is like nobody will speak bad of the dead. True. So all the good, all everyone who's dead, oh, he was a great guy, but, but all the people who really were good, they're already dead. And so there are no good men among the living, not really, you know. And so then, and look, that's the war for twenty years, man. You know, I swear to God. I couldn't make this shit up. I wish I could, but I'm not that creative. Um, uh, Robert Grenier, who was the CIA station chief in Islamabad at the time of the terror war, at the dawn of it, his job was, and, and if you read Fool's Aaron, you'll remember this, his job was coordinating with the Pakistani army and the Pakistani frontier corps that when the Americans come across the border into Pakistan chasing al-Qaeda hot on their heels, deconfliction to make sure there's no friendly fire and we don't accidentally wax our own guys or our sure. Pakistani allies don't kill our Delta force and everybody focuses only on the enemy. So he was the one in charge of arranging all that, right? Anyway, so he gave just a month ago, he gave an interview to NPR News where he's actually making this terrible comparison about the January 6th ride at the Capitol and saying that, well, I'll get to that in a second. I'm more on the tangent here. For this part of it, roll, but this roll, is what he but. says. He, he's making this terrible me metaphor about the American right, but he invokes the dawn of the terror war, and he tells the NPR interviewer, he says, "Listen, after September 11th, yeah, sure. I mean, we had to focus on Al Qaeda as a secondary target, but our primary focus was sort of the environment in which they were allowed to thrive." Well, so he's just admitting right there that they prioritized attacking the Taliban that did not attack us. And they let Al-Qaeda go. Sure. And in fact, that's exactly what they were doing. They're, the Rangers were up there fighting in Kunduz and Mazari Sharif and down in Kandahar. And, or, or the Green Berets were up in Mazari Sharif. The Rangers were in Kunduz, Kandahar, and um, the Bagram Air Base. And then you had the Marines also down in Kandahar province. General Mattis had 4,000 Marines. And the Delta Force and the uh, CIA Special Activities Division paramilitaries who had bin Laden and his few hundred friends cornered at Tora Bora um, begged re repeatedly for weeks for reinforcements from these Rangers and Green Berets and could have asked for the Marines. I don't know if anybody – Mattis says he asked to get in the fight and was forbidden to get in the fight. Um, and then they got away and here Grenier invokes that and explains it. He's not even embarrassed. He goes, well, of course, you know, yeah, sure. We had to attack Al Qaeda too, but our primary focus was on the environment in which they're thriving. And then of course his horrible metaphor is 
that the rioters at the Capitol, they're Al-Qaeda. And that means that the American right are, as you were bringing up Brennan before, accusing even lib- even libertarians are all domestic terrorists, potential violent extremists, uh, as they put it. And, um, and so we could focus on the actual people who did something, but instead we've decided to focus on the environment in which they're thriving, which means we got to kick you off of Facebook and, you know, whatever excuses they come up with to entrap people who had nothing to do with any of this stuff, you know, but who one time went to a three percenter meeting or whatever the criteria will be. Um, uh, But anyway, the real point being that he admitted my thesis right there, as he put it himself, that Al Qaeda was the secondary target. The guys that killed 3000 New Yorkers were not the primary focus of the mission. The primary focus of the mission was regime change against the Taliban in Kabul, who did not do it. And in fact, had sent their foreign minister to try to warn us that it was happening. And by the way, it was funny. Some guy tried to debunk that by linking to articles that confirm that is absolutely (laughs) true. And even the Americans are quoted in there saying, yes, it's true, but we get warnings like that all the time. So how are we supposed to know that that was the important one? So it's absolutely confirmed that Watson Kill sent his aide to go and talk to the Americans in Pakistan. Uh, to try to warn them that Al-Qaeda is up to something. They're going to attack you soon. And he was turned away and dismissed. So um, and then that's who they targeted. And then so that's who the war has been to keep them out of power for the last 20 years. And in fact, as I explained in the book, they originally gave up because they they wisely it was Zalmay Khalilzad was, you know, who was an Afghan American and, and obviously knew enough about it. He picked Hamid Karzai to be the new leader. And Karzai, even though he was like a Western compromise sock puppet type, he and had been, you know, an advisor to Unical and this kind of stuff in the 90s. He was the son of a very important leader from the Popolzai tribe from Kandahar City and so in down in the Pashtun South. So when they put him in the chair in Kabul, the Taliban said, eh, fuck it, good enough for us. This this government, we recognize it as Islamic and legitimate, even if it's not us. Can you imagine that? They didn't say this will be the mother of all battles and we vow that we'll kill you and we will return all this. They quit. And you know what? It's it's a fact now. Bet to damn this great Dutch reporter has proven all of this, sure. that Mullah Omar, he just went and retired to a life of quiet study at his house. He did nothing but sit there and read books about Islam with his one good eye for 13 years and died of natural causes in 2013. And it was finally admitted in 2014 or 12 years. He's just sitting there reading a book right down the street from an American military base. You know, he, he just retired. He got he. Hey, look, America defeated his government really badly in October and November of 2001. What's to what's to argue about? He lost. He, he left the field and he wrote a letter authorizing all of his top commanders that he respects their decision if they want to surrender. No problem. He released them from any pre- previous loyalty to his government and said, you guys are free to. Um, surrender. And then they did. They all wrote a letter to the new government saying, hey, we surrender. We want to work with you, et cetera. And then the Americans refused to accept their surrender. Of course. And so guys like Gubaldin Hekmatyar and Jalaluddin Haqqani, who had been the CIA's favorite warlords during the 1980s, they became America's bitterest enemies in alliance with the Afghan Taliban for years. And um, Haqqani finally died, but his son is still like uh, aligned with the Afghan Taliban and fighting. He tried to come into cold, into the in from the cold for years. The American it wasn't until the end of 03 or 04, I think, um, that he finally resigned 
himself to enemy of the Americans status and crossed the border for safe haven in Pakistan and waged his war since then. And Hekmatyar kept fighting until 2016. And he finally made a peace deal and came in uh, from the cold uh, in, and went to Kabul in 2016. But he, you know, those two guys, other than the Afghan Taliban, his Islami, uh, Hekmatyar's group, and the Haqqani network of Jalaluddin Haqqani, these were the most vicious uh, fighters of the Americans and against Afghan civilians in this whole war for these last two decades. And, and at the beginning of the war, they begged to come in from the cold. And the Americans refused to accept their surrender, man. We've been fighting this war. And then, you know what pisses me off about this, too? And I guess this is probably the part that bothers you, too, maybe would be the part where they say, listen, maybe you're allowed to. But me, who's been against this all along, nowadays, I guess people don't care as much. But for a very long time, the rule was I'm not allowed to say anything about this. Otherwise, I might hurt your feelings as a veteran. And there's nothing worse in the world than hurting the feelings of a veteran. And so if you say protect the troops, bring them home, stop sending them to some hellscape to die for nothing and lose anyway, um, instead bring them home to be safe. Nah, that's an absolutely, you know, fringe minority report position. It's not to be seriously considered. All decent patriots in this country know that you just have to shut up and love the war and support the troops means support whatever mission they're on for years and years and years they push this but i can't help but note man i remember i was driving my cab and it would have been october right right when the bombs started falling october of 2001 and i had bob cole in my cab and he was the morning radio host on kvet the country station here in town, a hugely influential figure in the Austin community for decades. And I had him in my cab going, oh, yeah, we're tough guys. And, oh, it's going to be so easy. And I told him, no, it's not. We're going to lose. You can't defeat. Af- you can't take over Afghanistan. You can't pack. You can't pacify these people. You know, I don't I'm, I know nothing about this, but I know that the place is landlocked on the other side of mountains from the ocean. It's the size of Texas and these people and it's all shaped like Colorado mountains on the ground. And these men have rifles and they like to fight. It's a warrior culture. Right. Right. They are not going to lose to us. And if it'll take 10 years or 20 years or what have you. And Bob Cole represented the, you know, absolute hubris of every Republican in Texas and in this country. They're like, no, you know why? Because our army is like really strong and stuff and we can do whatever we want because we say so, which is just childish stupidity. And then look what happened, man. They've killed something like 100,000 sure. people there and they lost anyway. Yep. Now here we are. And Biden's saying, well, we'll either declare defeat now or maybe in six months. Right. But we lost the war, and everybody knows it, and everybody knows that there's nothing that can be done to reverse it. And we knew we weren't going to win it in the first place. I mean, that's part, part of the Afghan papers is that we knew it was an unwinnable war. We made rosy pronouncements to to, yep. to get you know the American public on our side in that war. And then, look, they tripled the war in the Obama years. Obama came in. He said, look, I want to send another couple brigades to help our guys out. And they're like, another couple brigades, huh? We want 70,000 troops. Yeah. And they did the absolute full court press through the entire year of 2009 and essentially rolled him and forced him to give in, threatened that Gates, Petraeus and McChrystal would all resign and call him a disgrace and a coward and a defeatist and all of this stuff and destroy his presidency if he didn't escalate the war. And 
And I love this because this is the exact same calculation that Donald Trump made. Like, oh, no, I better do what they say so they don't call me weak. Right. And then roll right over and then what? Let the generals who ostensibly are the subordinates call the shots. And Obama did it and Trump did the exact same thing based on the exact same calculation that they're going to say that something bad happened. You withdrew. This is a great George Carlin bit from 1992. What did we do wrong in Vietnam? We pulled out. Well, that's not a very manly thing to do, is it? No, you can't do that. You got to stay in there. And it gets better from there. Everyone go watch Jammin' in New York. The original cut. Uh, there's some alternative cut that's not nearly as funny. It's the original cut of Jammin' in New York, everybody. George um, George Carlin was a national treasurer, by the way. Treasure. I'll tell you what. Treasure. Um, but, you know, so that was the deal. And then Trump made the same decision, too, that they're going to call me weak if I stand up to them and say no. And and both of them had the opportunity. They both could have given speeches where they said, screw that, man. You guys elected me because I'm the anti-war guy. Everybody knows that. Hi, kids. Do you like violence? Are you sick to death of pussyfooting around the truth while being constantly fed lies by news and big tech tyrants? If so, then come join me, Dan Smots, on The System Is Down, where we get weird, have fun, and dig into all the dangerous taboo topics like conspiracies, politics, religion, culture, current events, and everything your family just prays you don't bring up around the Thanksgiving dinner table. And I know that reality is scary to some people, so if you're easily offended, just ignore this and go back to making cat memes or whatever. But if you're ready to change the world for the better, come join me on The System Is Down down at tsidpod.com or wherever you get podcasts. That's tsidpod.com because the system is down and truth is taking over. And so screw John McCain. In fact, the more John McCain wants us to stay in the war, the faster I'm going to get out. How do you like that? And that would have been the alpha dog thing to do for both of them, right? But instead they roll over and do as they're told and extend the war. A war that they both knew. And look, you read uh, Obama's Wars by Bob Woodward, which is just about Obama's war is all it is. It's about the year 2009 and then forcing him to do the surge. And he knew better the whole time. Him and Biden both knew better the whole time. At one point, Obama said he was considering the just get out of there option or the no new troops at all option. And then instead, he turned around and gave him 70,000 more and, you know, tripled the war, killed tens of thousands of more people. And why? Why? Only for his own political needs. Didn't for want to his be own political needs. Because Lindsey Graham was going to call him a pussy. <laughs> oh, no. And he was afraid yeah. of what that might, you of know, course. how bad that might hurt. You of know? course. Well, and they, none of them want to piss off the, the big uh, MIC donors, you know. That's yep. a terrible idea. Uh, speaking yep. of regime change and, and uh, decades-long uh, conflict, you think Biden's going to get that war with Iran ever? No, 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 I don't think so. I mean, look, the history of of America over there for the last 20 years is the history of America can't fight Iran. And so we got to try to figure out something else. And then they keep trying to figure out something else and it keeps blowing up in their face and and making Iran more and more powerful. And so that's why they're always so frustrated and, and, and upset about it. But essentially we have. You know, I don't know the details of the war plans. But essentially, it's impossible to take out enough of their medium range missiles on our first sweep through to prevent them from absolutely decimating American forces sure. in Iraq, Afghanistan, Kuwait. And then for that matter, we have the massive Al Ulid air base in Qatar, which is the head of central command in the Middle East. 
and the Fifth Fleet is stationed at Bahrain, as you well know. Right. And all of that is up for grabs, stationary targets up for total decimation by incoming Iranian missiles. And so could they win a war against us or any of our allies in the region? I guess <clears throat> if they marched every 18-year-old they had, they could maybe occupy Kuwait or something. They could not take Saudi Arabia. And and um, we've been fighting for their friends, the Hazaras in Afghanistan all this time and for their friends um, in among the Shiite factions in Iraq all this time. So that wouldn't really be a problem. In fact, it would be a problem for our troops in the sense that um, if you even go back to 2007 when Bush was really pushing to attack or Cheney was really pushing Bush to attack uh, bases inside Iran in 2007, uh, Seymour Hersh had some great quotes. In fact, I think the Muqtada al-Sadr uh, quote was just in the papers, but Hirsch had some quotes from um, the representative from the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq, where they said, hey, if America went to war with Iran, what would you do? And he said, we would do our duty, which meant kill American GIs everywhere. But see, these weren't the guys we were fighting against. These were the guys we were fighting for. These were the guys that we fought Iraq War II for. So it would have been like Order 66 in Star Wars 3, right, where the right. clones shoot the Jedi in the back kind of thing, where our guys are essentially like the, in the British style, white officers leading native troops in battle. In this case, these Shiite militia death squads. But our guys are severely embedded with their guys. And so if we turn on their other patrons, the Iranians, they're going to choose their local alliance sure. over us in a heartbeat. Right. And so. Uh, and Muqtad al-Sadr, who has like 40,000 men at his command with the snap of his fingers, uh, had said the same thing. So any troops that we have, any troops we have in Iraq now, even though they're really there to pick a fight with the Shiites, they are essentially, practically speaking, they are embedded with the Shiite Iraqi army fighting against the remnants of ISIS, the, the very last little bit of al-Qaeda in Iraq that's still running around there. And so it would be the same thing. We fought Iran now. It would be the Shiite Iraqi army that George W. Bush built and right. David Petraeus built there would be shooting our guys in the back. Our our allies would be killing our guys because we'd be attacking their other allies. And look, if you just look at the map, for America to really win a war against Iran, you're talking about an invasion. Mm -hmm. An invasion, you can forget because we're talking about a World War II level effort to invade France. At that point, you're talking about massive, you know, infantry, massive uh, air campaign, the, the entire, you know, a draft and the entire attention of the American people, the entire nation's project is now occupying Persia. No way. Sure. And I think after Iraq War Two, and this was pretty clear and it, this was thrice reported. I don't know. It seemed credible at the time. I don't think anybody disputed at the time that the beginning of 07, the um the Joint Chiefs brought W. Bush to the Pentagon, to the tank, as they call it. They said, we're going to do the surge. We are not going to attack Iran. And I think at least at that time, the reporting was the Air Force was all gung-ho for it. This is going to be great, like a Lockheed promo ad or something. Um, and then I guess the Navy, they're pretty confident about their air power, but maybe they were a little bit more worried about losing some ships to the bottom of the Gulf. Um, but then... The Special Operations Command and the Army and the Marines, especially, I guess, the SOCOM guys were like, how many hundreds or thousands of our guys have to die 
trying to take out the anti-aircraft inside yeah. the country because you need a guy on the ground with a laser designator for the um, for the aircraft to strike from far away, you know, with these laser guided bombs from far enough away that they're not susceptible to the anti-aircraft. Right. So then you can bring in the heavier stuff. Right. So then, in other words, we're talking about the Army and the Marines are like, no, we don't want to do that. Well, and, and not so, to cut you off, when, when I transited, transited the Straits, I mean, looking at Iran, you could see it. And it's, I mean, there's, uh, the entire shore is filled with missiles. I mean, they, it's, it's pretty, oh, yeah. it's pretty scary transiting those Straits, man. Yeah. I mean, and look, it's, it's an important deterrent. And, and look, the Ayatollah, for whatever you want to say about him, and he's a cruel SOB, you know, I don't think anybody could argue about that, but he's a cool customer. He does not make rash decisions. Look at what happened after um, Trump killed this guy. Think about if Petraeus had actually ever won a war. You remember how they try to build him up to be such a hero yep. or whatever? Like that guy cost him Soleimani. This is like if if they had, somebody had did a drone strike and killed like Eisenhower or something um, or, or General MacArthur or something like a real widely respected American hero general. Um, that was who they killed. And what the Ayatollah do? He fired a volley of missiles at an empty corner of an American airbase sure. and deliberately missed. And meaning, hey, Trump, you're going to let me get the last word on that, right? And Trump said fine, <laughs> which to Trump's credit, too, yeah. Trump could have done something dumber. And instead he went, eh, the Ayatollah shot some missiles at the empty corner of a base. Mm, go was, ahead. That was by what design the hell? for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know what? They might have had a phone call like, OK, you can do this and we'll do that. You know, I don't know. Um, but, you know, that could have escalated. See, it goes to show how dangerous this all is because an itchy trigger finger on a surface to air missile uh, uh, installation near Tehran got a civilian airliner shot down. Right. And, you know, 200 something people died. Yep. And it was because he saw a blip on his radar and thought, oh, no, it's an incoming American missile volley or, or incoming American uh, fighter jet or fighter bomber or something and tried to shoot it down. But it was just a, I guess, a Ukrainian plane taken off from the Tehran airport. Of course, yeah. And so, but at first, unsurprisingly, they blamed it on America. Right. And they might have, you know, pressure might have built up enough that. They might have had to retaliate for that, even though it actually was an accident. Or you know how it is with politics. And the Iranians' political system is just as screwed up oh, as ours. Yeah. So you know, <laughs> yeah, at least it's, it's pretty close. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or when it comes to flawed republics, I think we could have a contest sure. one weekend and see. You know, well, we did. Um, we did shoot down one of their uh, commercial airliners in the. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, in '89. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, no, and, and look, I think, um, and I explain in the book there, this is why they attacked Iraq. They thought it would weaken Iran, True. but then it empowered Iran. So this is why they attacked Syria. <laughs> they thought it would weaken Iran, but then it only empowered Iran. So this is why they attacked Yemen. So they thought it would weaken Iran, <laughs> but instead it just empowered Iran. Sure. So now they're going, oh no, Iran is more powerful than ever before for some reason that we have no idea what might have happened between then and now to make it this way. Sure. So, um, and then you'll hear them from time to time. They'll say, well, you know, the real problem here, Joshua, is there's now a land bridge, you know, a road. Right. That runs essentially unbroken from Tehran to Beirut. Right. Saddam Hussein used to stand in the way. Now he does not. Not anymore. And now it's all one big, as they call it, the Shiite crescent, the Iranian axis of power 
from Tehran to Baghdad to Damascus to southern Lebanon there where, you know, Hezbollah has their little mini state there in southern Lebanon. And then so what's it's all about? It's all about Israel. Israel has a problem with Hezbollah. Sure. Iran arms Hezbollah through Syria. So the neocons thought somehow if we get rid of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, that'll give the Jordanian king dominance in Iraq and dominance over the Iraqi Shia, who will then break the Hezbollah away from Iran and dominate Iran and break the Iranian people away from their Ayatollah because we have a better Ayatollah and some insane thing. If you read the clean break, that's the strategy. True. And of course, it is one of those things where when you read it, you go, what could possibly go wrong with this plan? You know what I mean? You're gonna, in order to weaken Iran, you're gonna get rid of their avowed enemy. But but don't worry though, because we're gonna replace them with an even better avowed enemy that's right. gonna, and then no, that's not what happened. You replaced them with their allies. Sure. So now what are you gonna do? Yeah, exactly. Right? And then that's why, and, and cause this is really puzzling to people, cause it does sound crazy. That like after September 11th, sure, everybody knows Ronald Reagan backed these guys in the 80s and hey, some people know Bill Clinton backed him in the 90s even after they were already attacking us. But after September 11th and after Iraq War II, you wanna tell me we're fighting for Al-Qaeda in Syria? Well, that just can't be right. What could possibly be the explanation for that? And the answer is the government in Damascus is friends with the government in Tehran. And we're trying to take their alliance away. Simple as that. Of course, absolutely. Um, And you brought up Yemen, which I think is not talked enough about. Um, I I wish libertarians would talk so much more about Yemen and and the humanitarian crisis that's been caused there. Um, But the other I listened to your uh, episode with Jeff Dice the other day. And you had actually said what happened in Somalia is just as bad as Yemen. Can you expand on that a little more? Yeah. Hey, thanks for asking that one, man. I mean, honestly, not to sound all like trendy and woke or whatever, but I think it's obvious, isn't it? The Somalis get the short shrift because they're the blackest victims of the terror war. True. Isn't that right? Yeah. That that's why nobody cares. And yet George Bush has been, you know, the USA has been picking on these people since 2001. But they didn't do it. They didn't do anything to us. And here's what happened, man. Essentially, this is the Washington Post version, okay? In other words, the CIA version of the story, the official State Department version of the story. There were some Islamists who supposedly were wanted for questioning for involvement in the attack on the U.S. embassies in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and Nairobi, Kenya in 1998, and the USS Cole in port in Aden, Yemen, in October 2000. And they go, okay, well, so here's what we're going to do. After September 11th, they sent CIA and JSOC. That's, I don't know if it was Delta or SEALs. I guess it was SEALs. It was top-tier special forces, a special operations force. Pardon me. By, the end, by, by Christmas 01. By the time bin Laden was getting away, in Afghanistan, they had, in, in other words, you know, I, I hadn't put two and two together on this one before, right? But like when, when Delta was begging for reinforcements at Tora Bora, whether it was SEALs or Delta, whichever, I forget, you had top tier special operations forces. Instead, we're going on a snipe hunt in Somalia. Right. Before New Year's, man, before Operation Anaconda, before 2002 even dawned, they were off in Somalia. And what they did was remember, everybody remembers Black Hawk Down. There's a book and a movie about it. And this was, uh, you know, Bush Sr. had started Operation Restore Hope, supposedly just to pro- under the United Nations to provide food aid to the people of Somalia in their terrible post-communist disillusion civil war that had broken out. And then 
pass the mission on to Bill Clinton's government. And then in uh, what early summer 93, I guess, or midsummer 93, uh, I'd have to go back now. I forget. I know it was after Waco because it was some of the same guys from Delta Team B who were there who died in Somalia. Um, um, or at least were there. I forget now if they were some of those same ones who were killed or not. Um, anyways, so it was, it was after Waco, but it was still 90 or still the first half of 93. I'm almost certain. And, and some Rangers and some Delta guys got killed and they're uh, one of their helicopters. That's Black Hawk down is the title comes from one of the, or two of the helicopters, I think maybe had gotten shot down and then the bodies were dragged through the street and it was this big, you know, um, horrendous PR disaster for Clinton. But then he did the right thing and got the hell out of there. Right. And said and, and gambled on the American people will forget that such a thing ever existed. And I gotta make this point, even though it's a tangent, but it's important. Bin Laden later told Abdelbari Atwan of Al Quds Al Arabi, the paper in London, who uh, he went and interviewed Bin Laden for three days. And he said it was his fighters that helped to bring down those helicopters that were embedded with those guys there in fighting that thing. And they had a deliberate purpose and a mission. They were to provoke America into getting bogged down in a war of attrition in Somalia, just like he had helped to the Americans had helped the Mujahideen to inflict on the Soviets in Afghanistan. He was trying to replicate that against the Somalis as early as 93 and didn't care how many Somalis had to die in the thing as long as the Americans were bogged down and bled out and forced out the hard way. And then he was severely disappointed when Bill Clinton left instead of staying and making matters worse. Goes to show you the Bin Ladenite strategy all along was to provoke America into losing the long and hard way, not scaring us away early in the game. Um, but anyway, so when that Black Hawk Down episode happened, that was they were on a hunt for a warlord named Adid. Well, in 2001, George W. Bush comes and hires Adid's son and a bunch of other guys and gives them a bunch of guns and money to go and hunt down Islamists. Well, of course, they just hunt down whoever they want, right? They hunt down their enemies. They build up their power. And the more they build up their power, the more enemies they create. And the more enemies they create, the more they come back to the CIA and say, see, there's Islamists in them our hills. We need more guns and we need more money. And the CIA gives them more guns and more money. And this goes on for four years until 2005. Finally, as the saying goes in libertarianism, war is the health of the state. At Georgetown University, they call it the rally around the flag effect. That's what they call it themselves. Okay, and so what it is, is they created a new government. They didn't have a state. It had been essentially feuding warlords and then a period of kind of uh, stalemate and statelessness at the turn of the century. And they created a new state just to defend against Bush's warlords. And they did. It was called the Islamic, God dang, sorry. It's called the Islamic Courts Union. And they succeeded in forcing the warlords out of the country into Ethiopia in 2005. And then at the very, I guess, you know, toward the end of 2005. And then there's light fighting through 06. And then at the end of 06, Christmas 06, Bush sponsors the Ethiopians full scale invasion of the country and they are historical enemies. They'd both been communist regimes in the days of the Cold War, but America had backed the Somalis. Um, uh, Syed Barre, who was a communist dictator, but he was against the Soviet aligned Ethiopians at the time. 
Um, but anyway, so now we'd switch sides in that thing. But the Somalis are Muslims and the Ethiopians are Christians. And, you know, and there's this historical enmity going back. So then when the Ethiopian army invaded, they committed massive atrocities against the people of Somalia, rapes and murders and torture and all of the worst kinds of things. And with the CIA and special operations, gunships flying overhead, providing full air support and all that, helping rendition people back to Ethiopia to be tortured and and I guess to Kenya, too. Um, and then essentially for years uh, since 2006, since the end of 2006, the Americans have supported through the AU, the African Union, uh, we've supported Ethiopian, Kenyan, Ugandan and Burundian troops in occupying that country. And so at the time that they invaded the Islamic Courts Union that I mentioned there, the smallest, weakest part of the Islamic Courts Union was the youth, al-Shabaab. And their job was to sit there and be quiet while the grownups decided what to do and things like that. Well, once the war broke out, Guess who does the fighting? The youth grab the rifles. And so people go, oh, well, Somalia, we're at war with al-Shabaab. We're at war with al-Shabaab. Okay, fine. But only since about one third of the way through the war, they're a consequence of the war. And then now they're the excuse. This is what the military calls a self-licking ice cream cone. They make their own crisis and then they fight it and keep the thing going forever and ever and ever. And, And then the worst part of this and and what people really need to understand about the war in Somalia is that in 2010 and 11, and then and again, and I guess what, 16, 17, they had massive famines there, they had huge droughts in the Horn of Africa. And Eritrea, Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia all got hit. But it was the Somalians who laid down and died because they were at war and their entire economic system had been completely destroyed. And so the food was, you know, the the crops were not being planted and they were not being distributed. There were no markets, no money, no nothing. And the entire, you know, system of distribution of food had broken down. And so the people just laid down and died on the side of the road. Massive refugee camps. And in 2013, the um, group FuseNet, which is backed by the United States and Britain, the famine early warning system, reported that a quarter of a million Somalis had already died of starvation in this thing. More than half of them children under five years old. So this is essentially you couldn't find a poorer, weaker group of people anywhere in the world for the most powerful world empire in all of history to pick on here. This is like a, um, you know, high school, var- maybe pro football player picking on a kindergartner. Right. This is just this is it's just the the disparity in power here. And again, against people who never did anything to us and never threatened us in any way whatsoever. And and at the time of the actual invasion in Christmas of 06, the Washington Post said, well, see, there are three, three men wanted for questioning by the FBI suspects wanted for questioning for their possible involvement in the African embassy attacks of 1998. Because before September 11th, this was still a matter for the Justice Department and grand juries and indictments and criminal cases. So these guys weren't even declared enemy combatants under the Bush regime. They were indicted suspects to be tried, uh, to be, in fact, they weren't even indicted. They were simply wanted for questioning was the way that what the, that the Post put it. And then that was the Casas Belli. That was the excuse for the war, that there are three guys who may have been involved in this attack against the United States years before in the country. And then and then they had another famine in the late teens, I guess, 16, 17. They had another major famine there. 
and the country's absolutely at war. The government in Mogadishu has no legitimacy whatsoever, but the Americans will never let it go. Right. And they'll never just admit that, look, we can't have our way here. We have to just let these people figure it out themselves. And they just won't do it. And of course, the Horn of Africa is important. And they're afraid that, oh, the Chinese will get dominance there, some kind of thing. As though anyone in the world has an interest in trying to close the gates of the Red Sea. Right, right. Or or could stand against the American Navy determined to open them back up again. Right. You know, give me a break. Yeah. Um, but that's the excuse for it. And then look, I mean, the reality is that um, it, it's such a low priority and it's one of these kind of leading from behind sort of proxy wars that most Americans don't even know is happening at all. Right. And are couldn't be further from being willing to understand and take the reins and rise up, take responsibility for doing something to end the thing. You know, where's the U.S. out of Somalia movement? There isn't one. No one's ever heard. Nobody even knows we're there. You know, the Burundian troops are committing war crimes in Somalia. What's that got to do with me? Right. Well, they took the money for it right out of your paycheck is what it's got to do with you. The Burundians wouldn't be there at all if it wasn't for the United States of America insisting that they occupy that country for us. And so, you know, thank you for asking about because it is one that that people just that it doesn't get any attention whatsoever. And it's, it's been going over. on. Look, it's been going on for 20 years, yep. killing people for 20 years. Did they do the September 11th attack on us? No. Mm-mm. No. That's why I thought it was such an important question, too. Like, it's, it's you know, it, it kind of looks like Yemen a little bit, too, where it's, you know, that same kind of issue, but it's something that no one talks about. No one yep. talks about it. So I figured you'd know a little Yemen bit about it. some attention, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yep. Yeah, Yemen gets a little bit of attention. Libertarians talk about Yemen much more than they talk about Somalia. Um, right. It's, you know, because we, we are aware of the current, uh, like I said, humanitarian crisis going on there that we've caused. I mean, we, you know, part, partly caused and, um, yep. but Somalia is just one you never hear brought up. The only time you hear some Somalia brought up is when someone's like, Oh, you're a libertarian. Why don't you move to Somalia? You know, that's it. It's the only time right. it's ever brought up. Um, and look, and I talk about that in the book and, and, you know, I wrote an article one time, people want to look this up, um, for the future freedom foundation called us government responsible for Somalia's misery. And in there, I quote, there are three or four, you know, really important studies that were done right around the turn of the century about how statelessness really was working out for the Somalis. And that's the basis of that ridiculous liberal joke where they try to mock us and make fun of us and say, oh, you think freedom works? Why don't you move to Somalia? That comes from libertarians did do studies in Liberty Magazine and at George Mason University and other places saying that, wow, check it out, man. The communists essentially exhausted themselves and, and fell. And then all the warlords that cut, that divided up the country, they all exhausted themselves. You didn't have one big gangster win out and take over the whole country. Nobody won. Right. It was peace without victory. Yep. And there was no one warlord who was powerful enough to rule more than a county at a time or whatever it was. So in essence, by default, you had a state of anarcho-capitalism. And you had no one to collect the taxes at the ports of Mogadishu or Kismayo. And so they were just absolutely bustling with business. It was the fastest growing economy in that part of Africa. And they had, you know, by all measures and including like cell phone towers being put in and all these kinds of things. And it was working for them. It was working for them. And then so what's the liberal argument that the anarcho-capitalist state in uh, state of being in Somalia wasn't enough to fend off the American empire. Right, right, right. Okay, well, I guess you got me there. Yeah. But 
it's America has been responsible for all the chaos there for 20 years straight. Not liberty. Right. Not liberty. Red, white, and blue bombs. But I don't think that's the same thing. No. And from now on, whenever somebody tells me that, I'm going to say, I would, but our government's already fucked it up. That's right. <laughs> so uh, hundreds of thousands oh, yeah. of people. He's a, hundreds quarter, and you said hundreds. quarter of a million. I mean, that's a, lot. a quarter of a million as of 2013, man. That's wild, man. And no one talks about it. Nobody talks, Nobody about, talks it. about it. So uh, your wealth of knowledge on the wars in the Middle East is, uh, it's got to be unmatched. I mean, I just don't know that there's anybody who is as, as um, good at you good as you at talking about this stuff uh i sit around wishing i could acquire half the knowledge that you have but what you got it right there just read that book I, twice hey, and everybody totally read this book every let's look at that there you go um that's everything i know and i'm mad about good good all of it good uh but you know what's even more important to me is uh you know bringing bringing the troops home shutting down bases overseas uh, say we get a legit anti-war president in 2024 long shot i know i know um, accounting for logistics, how long do you think a full personnel and material withdrawal would actually take? I mean, is that something that you could, I mean, you know, oh, speculate about? I don't know, six or eight months max? Or it. What's it take to close down a base and move some guys out? Certainly less than a year. Sure. To close down everything in Europe and Asia and the Middle East, Latin America, whatever you got. We don't need any of that. And that's all it would take. You know? Yeah. And look, you know, people talk about, oh, it's the rise of China. Do you really think that the Chinese have sat there for the last 20 years saying as soon as the Americans are out of the way, we want to replicate exactly what they've been doing? Right. We're going to blow. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to blow our whole wad trying to occupy Mesopotamia. Right. It'll be brilliant. It'll be great. Everyone will love us. Sure. We'll change their entire culture into a successful Chinese one like ours. Especially when they're Does anybody their think that that's what they want? No. Well, especially when their government has, I mean, full control over the people of their of their their country i mean it's just sure. full control they can do whatever they want at this point so of course yeah and they have no need for a world empire and this is look if you hadn't learned this lesson from everybody else before us the americans the usa pax americana situation we're dealing with right now proves the case as good as any other one you don't even have to crack a history book you know did George Bush blow our whole wad in the Middle East? Yeah. Was that the high watermark of American power and influence back in 2003? Undeniably so. Sure. Undeniably so. They broke the American empire through overextension, which is what all empires do. The Chinese solidified their policy on overseas imperialism somewhere around 3000 years ago, right? 2,500, you know, and I don't, I'm not the master historian on, on the Chinese, but one of these uh, experts I was talking to told me the story of, I don't know how long ago this was a thousand years ago or 500 years ago or something. The Chinese built this massive fleet, the, the greatest Navy fleet that had a naval fleet that had ever been created. And then they went sailing all around Indonesia and India and Africa and the Middle East and then they came home and said, it sucks out there, man. The food is terrible and the mosquitoes are gigantic and we hate it. Yeah. And so and then they sank their giant Navy and they never went overseas again. You know, they consolidated the Qin Empire back, you know, 2000 years ago, right around 2000 years ago. Um, so in terms of like extending their commercial influence around the world, trading Juan for barrels of oil. 
sure. But why should anyone perceive that as a threat? Sure. You know, there's no reason to think that that's a threat. These people, well, America is the the waning power and China's the rising power, so we must confront them. Yeah, but we're not supposed to be a world power at all anyway. We're supposed to be a humble little commercial constitutional republic who lets the rest of the world deal with these things. Let the Europeans and the Chinese fight over who's the dominant power in Eurasia. Sure. What the hell do we care about that? This is the new world. Who says that we're even supposed to care at all who's the dominant power in Asia? You know, these guys always are begging the question and starting with their conclusion and pretending like it just goes without saying that, of course, we have to be the dominant power between China and Russia and Eastern Europe. Obviously, because we're the middle part of North America and right. that just makes perfect sense and you're not supposed to question it ever. But if you don't just accept that without saying then it actually makes no sense whatsoever. There's no reason in the world that we should care. What if China does decide to absorb Kazakhstan and purge all the Kazakhs and drive them into outer Mongolia? I don't care about that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, you know what? I mean, I do in a sense. They're like, you shouldn't hurt people and whatever. You know, I don't know. But does that threaten America's national interest? In any way? No, it doesn't. Right. And and is China, is that what they plan on doing? No. no. They, they're trying to build a road to Lisbon, okay, to the, to the far west coast of Europe. Now, how the hell are they going to do that if they're fighting an Islamist insurgency the whole time? Right, right. And have no security anywhere along their highway. It's supposed to be a highway and a railroad and fiber optic and whatever you got, all the whole shebang from Shanghai to Lisbon, the Belt and Road Project. Now, how are they supposed to do that if everywhere they go, they have sharp elbows and automatic rifles in the American style? It's not going to work. Mm -mm. And they're not that stupid. I mean, I'm not saying that they're fun. I mean, clearly, like the, the Beijing government is all business with no sense of humor whatsoever. But that doesn't mean that they're not pragmatic. Right. That doesn't mean that they are as dimwitted and suicidal as George Bush and Barack Obama and Don, well. Trump just continued on their sure. projects. Sure. He but, didn't want to be called weak. You know? And look, you know, for all the talk about, you know, our presence being suborned by foreign powers, if George W. Bush and Barack Obama had been secretly in league with Osama bin Laden all along in the reverse 9-11 conspiracy theory where it's al-Qaeda that rules the CIA and rules the Americans, they couldn't have done a better job of committing the highest treason against this country. Sure. And I don't care what they've done to undermine the American empire, but look at what they've done to our country in terms of all the economic dislocation and all the partisan hatred and all of the, the especially the, the widespread societal effects of the economic effects of blowing all that money in the Middle East instead of shoring up our own land here. And, and the boom and the bust cycle, you know, people from who never recovered from 2008, then they have to go through 2020. And then now there's such a huge bubble already that, I mean, I don't know about in your town, man, in Austin, Texas, there's never, I've lived here my whole life. There's never been like this where there's homeless families sure. everywhere. I mean, when I was a kid, there were homeless Vietnam veterans everywhere. Okay. And there's an important lesson for me in that growing up. Yeah. No question about that. That dirty old green flak jacket. I know I know that. There's a reason those guys were homeless. And there's always been professional crusty punks who are, you know, rich kids who like the, you know, fish lifestyle or whatever. And there's always been winos and bums 
who are, you know, professional homeless people. That's not what I'm talking about now, man. Uh-uh. You know what it is? It's the price of a house in 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 Austin has gone up $100,000 in the last year. True. And it's because of the government creating all this money, a brand new massive bubble in real estate to try to prevent the full recession that they caused with the clampdown last year, the economic lockdown last year, which the bubble was due to pop anyway. Right. And you're talking about the bottom half of the economic ladder of the population of the country never recovered from 08. And now they're slammed down again. And so now you look at all the statistics where – uh, people are buying homes like the the average age of a homeowner, a first time home homeowner is now like 37. Right. They're not they're not getting married. They're not starting families. The the girls, you're like, dude, why why you spend your life on OnlyFans? Don't shouldn't you be like looking for a husband to start? Uh, sorry, there are no men with jobs available. <laughs> right. To pay the rent. Right. Somebody's got to pay the rent, and there's no jobs for her either. Right. There's no nothing that, you know, they're they have broken the American, you know, social framework and fabric through all this militarism through because it's not just that they wasted seven trillion dollars. It's the boom and the bust cycle that's caused by the inflationary money policy that is there to make the war seem free because right. they can't raise your taxes for these wars or you'll buck. But they can make it seem free, make it seem profitable even during the bubble times and then you don't realize that your time on the unemployment line or your time at your brother's funeral because he killed himself or whatever it is that's your price of the war in iraq right that's your share of obama starving you know and, and trump starving half a million yemenis to death is you know this is we gotta pay somehow and so we pay through debt and inflation and then especially that boom and bust cycle because everybody knows that price inflation sucks. But the problem is with the real problem with price inflation is it causes massive bubbles in certain sectors. And then that causes major crashes like we saw in 2000 and 2008 and then again last year. And then if, if the housing market has gone this crazy, home prices, I just posted the thing today, home prices – uh, and and the rate of increase of home prices across this country, the highest it's ever been. Well, if that was the case in the Bush years and that ended with the crash of 08 and ac ac absolute economic devastation planet wide, what's this one going to cause? Right. You know, and people are so poor, like I'm saying, they can't even get in the house to enjoy the inflated price because it's already so inflated. They're living on the street. Right. You know? I'm on month to month in this house, but one of these days he's going to figure out a loophole and figure out how to raise my rent by like two or three or five hundred dollars a month. True. And then I'm going to be homeless, too. You well, know? You're more than welcome to come live with me, Scott. We got seven kids, though. You're not going to get a lot of sleep. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to need a little more room than that, man. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be living in a storage shed. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, it's great. It's tough times. There's for good people in the storage shed community, man. Yeah. Good people. Well, well, you know what? You know what? Everyone could do to help out, Scott. You can go to uh, where can they find you, Scott? Hey, I'm at scotthorton.org and at antiwar.com and at libertarianinstitute.org and um, KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. And give this man your money. He has a mission. It is an amazing mission. He's the best at the mission. He needs all the help he can get to spread his word around the country, around the world. We need to let Scott's message be heard by everybody. Scott, 
you have been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on Break the Cycle. Happy to be here. And I didn't just come here to ask for money, by the way. I, we were just going to hey, talk about it. Hey, more but stuff. you know what? Look, my show is, is good. I want money, too. You know, I want, I want to get paid for doing the show eventually. Money's but important. What you're doing is so much more important than what most of us are doing. I mean, you have a niche that you are amazing at. Nobody can uh, uh, outmatch you when it comes to wits about the wars in the Middle East. They're something that affects all of us, whether we know they do or not. I appreciate your work, Scott. You're one of my favorite people in this movement. Thank you so much again for coming on. Thank you, Joshua. I really appreciate it, man. All right, guys. That was Scott Horton. Go buy his book today on Amazon. Enough already. Time to end the the war on terrorism. Uh, I have not finished it, unfortunately, but I will. As you guys know, I've been working like crazy. Uh, but I'm, I'm almost coming to an end with that, and I am going to read it twice, two times, just so I can understand everything. Uh, before I take off one more time, check out Lorenzotti.coffee. Uh, it's an amazing Italian coffee delivered directly to your door. You will not be disappointed. BTC at checkout will get you a 10% discount. TopLobster.com, the man, the myth, the legend, the greatest animator of all time, maybe. Uh, he does really cool shirts. Uh, he does the thumbnails for the show. He helps out a lot of people. He puts a lot of time into this movement uh, uh, visually. So if you guys can help him out by ordering some awesome gear from him, also use BTC at checkout. It'll give you a 10% discount. And, of course, anthemplanning.com for all your emergency and crisis planning needs. Let the free market handle those things. The government sucks at it. We already know. Uh, let's check the schedule. Coming up tomorrow, the normal Wednesday show, we'll have Clint from Liberty Lockdown. He is a savage. He's got a great, very fast-growing show. It is amazing. Uh, I can't wait to talk with him. We're going to talk about all kinds of cool things. Uh, and then Friday, the iconic shitposting legend, Neocon Remover. I believe he is John Bolton's third biggest enemy. It's going to be great. You never know what this guy's going to say. I'm a little nervous and also excited. And also added to next Tuesday, a special edition of Break the Cycle with Hotep Jesus. Hotep's been told you. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait to have him on. Uh, you know, all kinds of uh, commotions surrounding Hotep. So I finally said, let's platform the guy, hang out for an hour and see how it goes. Ah, uh, so... It's going to be a great couple of weeks for Break the Cycle. I appreciate you guys once again coming here. Uh, I will see you tomorrow night with Clint. Until then, don't forget to break the cycle. Due to legal reasons, I just have to explain. The lyrics of my last song may seem to contain a violent call to action in the verse and the frame. But I just spammed it in Minecraft. The helicopter part was in reference to GTA 5 and the things you do. So any violence you commit, I am not an excuse because I just spammed it in Minecraft. Lord Chipper is my friend and he's constantly cold. Accusations of incitement getting totally old. Make your own choices, yeah, you have control Because I just landed in Minecraft Obviously I would never advocate force Unless it's due process and a trial, of course And if you're convicted, we will make you a corpse In Minecraft, just in Minecraft You're nothing I mean, you know it The product finish gets the close to COVID